0: Fellowship of would you stand with us? Let's sing praises to the Lord our God. I'll say that
1: y'all Can take a seat. Welcome. My name is Hunter. I'm one of the community pastors here. We're uh, grateful that you came to worship with us. We love these uh, weekly gatherings where we get to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus together as family. And so, got my friend and teammate here, Susan, with me because today uh, we get to dedicate some children to the Lord. So, parents, kids, y'all go ahead and make your way on up here. And Y'all have probably been a part of some of these in the past, but just as a reminder, why do we, you know, do these things? Uh, we want to disciple kids from the youngest age, right, all the way to 18 till they graduate, uh, here at Fellowship, as a family. So this isn't just for parents and kids. Obviously, they're really important. Important parts of this process, but this is for us. Uh, many of you may step in to lead small groups for some of these kids over the course of the next 18 years, or cell groups, or anything like that. Uh, we don't do childcare here on Sunday mornings, so from the youngest age, we do discipleship classes, right? We're teaching young kids to know who is this authentic Jesus, and how can I have a relationship with him, and y'all get to be a part of this process, uh, not only through the whole thing, but even with us this morning
2: that's right we are so excited to come alongside these families as they have chosen to take the step of coming before their church to say that they want to lead their kids and living a godly life we have all heard it takes a village and can agree to that we all get to be a part of the village for these families and kids we have the privilege of being some of the trusted adults and students who get to tell them about and show them jesus and hunter you're right We do not do childcare here on Sunday mornings. Even our youngest ones are coming to know and love God because they are hearing God's word and stories at home and here every Sunday. We have somebody that wants to share some of that. Milo, can you share your scripture? Hiya, how are you? (laughs) Good
3: job, good job. (laughs) Can you share your Bible verse? Yeah, your enemies it does aren't mean to you. Yeah.
2: That was love. To those who can hear me, I say. I say love your enemies. Yeah, your me. enemies and those are mean to you. Do good to those who are mean to you. Luke. Luke. Six twenty-seven. Twenty-seven.
4: Do you want to do there for? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: Isn't that awesome? Luke.
1: I love that. Hey, this. Yeah,
2: you just quoted Luke, and Milo is three, oh. and he's learning these scriptures.
1: That's awesome.
2: And we are so blessed because you, our church family, play a big part in this spiritual journey because, it, because it's you guys who are teaching them in their classes, and in a few years, you'll be leading them in their first small groups.
1: I love it. So... Here at Fellowship, we believe that baptism takes place when a believer puts their faith in Jesus. But for our youngest kids, we still want this kind of stake in the ground moment. It's a memorial stone where we say, hey, that's the moment where we as parents and we as a church said that we are going to raise these kids to know Jesus and do everything we can to point them to him. So I want to encourage you parents to get a picture from today. We can get you some pictures, frame it. Do something to mark this moment um, as a day to remember of kind of this beginning process of discipling them. So who've we got, Susan?
2: We are blessed to be a part of this dedication with these families, which include Milo and Judah, Cryer, with their parents Foster and Lindsey, and big brothers Witten and Ronan. And we have Emma and Parker and Wes Erickson with their parents Bobby and Caitlin. We have Prue with parents right you. Jared and Adrian, and her sisters Hadley and Evie, and then we have Ben Rusko with parents Taylor and Shannon.
1: I love it. Well, hey, parents, y'all know this already, but just as a reminder, parenting is one of the hardest things that you will do, uh, but it's also one of the most joyful things and one of the most rewarding things, and these are God's children, but he has seen you fit to raise and to care for his creation, and that is no small weight no small task at all. You get to set the pace of their lives. You get to map out from an early age the priority of their lives. And so while you're here before your family and friends and Church Body, I wanna ask for you to make a commitment today. Parents, do you commit to loving your kids with Christ-like love, leading through humility, apologizing to them when you mess up, teaching them God's word, investing them into biblical community of their own and shepherding them as a gift from the Lord. If so, say, we will. I believe it. All right, why don't y'all step down on the steps and community groups, extended family, y'all come on up. We really do believe that this whole process of raising kids is one that we do as a community. And so uh, we love even just the visual of the people who are coming around them uh, getting to help raise these children. But it's not just those who are coming up here. It's all of us. Rather than asking you to commit to pray, uh, we're just going to do it right now. I wanna lead us through a time of prayer over these kids as we dedicate them to the Lord. And so if you know one individually, maybe you pray specifically for them as I lead us. If not, you can choose one or pray in general. If you're here with family or spouse or something, wanna gather and pray out loud, you can, or pray silently. But uh, let's all go to the Lord together as we lift these kids up to him. Lord, we wanna use Luke 2.52 as our framework where scripture tells us that Jesus himself The son of God came to earth and chose to to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with, with both God and man. And so it's what we pray over these kids. So we pause right now just to pray that they would grow in wisdom and in knowledge and in the truth of your scripture, God, that you would equip them even from an early age like we just got to see quoted. Would you stir that in them? God, we pray that each of them would grow in stature, physically, their minds, their bodies, that they would grow so that they can uh, just continue to articulate over their life the goodness of who you are and the things that they've experienced in you. And Lord, we pray for favor for these children as they grow up, that they would be men and women of peace, persons of peace in different situations, whether it's their, their schools, their universities, their jobs, that people would see the light of you shining through them and that they would gain favor with the people of this world so that they can have the relationships to share even more of the ways that you've changed their lives and the ways that you change lives all the time. we give you these children as an offering. We know they're yours and we wanna shepherd them well as you've placed them in our care um, on this earth. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. We pray all these things in your name, amen. We all thank them this morning.
5: team just wants you to know it's a true joy to participate with you this morning. We want you to know how welcome you are. Would you all stand with me? And as you do stand, I just pray that you'll yield your will and your heart to Jesus today. He's my hope. He's the source of my hope. And I just pray that as you start to worship, that you'll draw closer and tap into that hope and that we sing about his worthiness together. Let's sing this together.
4: In Philippians 1 verses 21 through 30, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, But it is more necessary for me that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on my account. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign for them of their destruction but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have.
6: Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Your word is, is, is glasses for our souls, but we see more clearly life as it is, and you as you are, even ourselves as we are. Thank you for loving us enough to not let us grope, but instead to lead us. We believe your word is your revelation. It tells us your mind and your heart. It tells us your will and your ways. And we who are followers of Jesus we wanna step in that way. We wanna be formed by your will. We want to see more of ourselves in light of who you are, but better, more of you in our lives. For these next few minutes, we're gonna trust that you will do that in and through this time. It's in your, in your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. And maybe perhaps you are visiting here from out of town because of Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue, or because of the Format Music Festival, or because of the LPGA, and to you we would say we're glad you're here if you're visiting us there. We're also glad that you helped give us a taste uh, this weekend of what the size of our city will be like in the next 10 years. And so it's good for us to get a dose of reality from time to time. And so we're grateful for that. But possibly what brought you into town was maybe your passion for motorcycles or for music or, or for golf. And when you think about that phrase passion, it does kind of cause you to ask some questions like, uh, how do you know if you're really passionate about something? And that's a serious question because we're a people who talk a lot about following your passion, finding your passion, pursuing your passion, living your passion. So it feels like it's a kind of an important topic, at least in our cultural landscape right now. How do you know when you're really passionate about something? If passion is just in your interests or maybe in your intensity, uh, then those are going to come and grow. Hey, I have my own personal definition. I believe that passion shows by what you're willing to endure. So passion doesn't show just by our interest level, by our intensity. uh, Because the truth is, those things will come and go. But what you're willing to endure, that tends to show you what's most important to you. And therein lies your passion. The Apostle Paul's passion was pretty evident. He wore it comfortably on his sleeve because it was deeply in his heart. And we saw last week as we opened up the letter to Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians, we saw that Paul's short ministry in Philippi was filled with suffering. Remember, he went into that city, and immediately after the little mini-revival breaks out, he was both beaten and jailed. And yet he continues to pursue the cause of the gospel Not just in Philippi, on that second missionary journey, he said, I need to get all the way to Rome. Rome would have been the power seat of the known world. And he wanted to go to the epicenter. Hunter last week called Paul's fourth, air quote, fourth missionary journey, that journey to Rome. Because Paul was arrested. Even that journey to Rome as a state-sponsored trip was filled with suffering, shipwreck. Almost died. And yet, when he gets to Rome, he gets put in a Roman prison, and the gospel continues to advance. Yeah, you can see what Paul's passionate about by what he's willing to endure. And he writes his friends in Philippi this letter that we've been opening up and studying together. Now, in a Roman prison, we left off with verse 20 of chapter 1. Last week, Hunter finished us with, My confident hope. Is that I will in no way be ashamed, but with it with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. And you almost get a sense that for Paul, life and death was the small issue. No, the big issue on the table for him was whether Jesus Christ was becoming more famous in and through his life. And because he's in Rome and the gospel is filtering out, even though he's in chains, the gospel's never chained, and it's moving through those guards who are there sent to a sign to protect him, Paul sees the gospel continue to leak out, not just to the streets, but into Caesar's palace himself. And so in Paul's mind, he is absolutely living the dream. How do you know? Because two verses earlier, he said, And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice. So Paul has this sustained, deep seated joy because he's experiencing his passion. What's most important to him is actually happening. And so as a result, his happiness factor is actually rising in life. And that's important for us to grab. Because whether or not we can express it with our lips or have concretely fixed it in our minds, we too have a vision of the good life. Everybody you meet has a vision of the good life. The good life is what will bring you personal fulfillment or satisfaction or significance. And we pursue this vision because we actually believe that when we get that, it will bring us joy and peace. And so, usually, when we're most honest, we connect our vision of the good life to good experiences or happy circumstances. And yet, when our vision of the good life is tied to experiences or circumstances, you have been adults long enough to know that those will rise and fall throughout life. And when we tie our vision of the good life to circumstances, the result is anxiety. Anger, disappointment, even despair. Paul, on the other hand, he was very clear what his vision of the good life is. I admire women and men who can succinctly crystallize and verbalize their vision for life. I find these people compelling. Paul's one of those. And in 12 words, he summarizes his vision of the good life. You ready for it? It's the first verse of our text this morning. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul decided that life for him was about pursuing his passion, following his passion, which was for Jesus and his purposes. And then on the day that he actually physically dies, he knows he's merely trading up to a greater experience of life with Jesus, Hey, a few weeks ago, Abel Schaefer taught on stewarding our relationship. I believe it was three weeks ago. And during that time, he did a great job articulating how, how the culture packages and sells us uh, our vision of the good life. And he tried to debunk that by putting on the screen what he called five myths. And the first myth he put on the screen, he said, was simply this. You are not that important. You remember that? And he closed number five with, you're going to die. Now, the reason he was kind of being so blunt and even semi-humorous is he was pitching us the truth that we need to remember, which is number one, others matter, and number two, life is short. Well, there's a couple in his community group who was listening to that message, and a couple of days later texted him an audio text and said, Hey, Abel, great teaching. We decided to create a new kind of lullaby as we tuck our kids in at night. I thought you might appreciate this. Here it is. discipleship happens in the home. I cannot wait to see those kids grow up. They're going to be better humans and they're going to even add another verse to that for their grandkids. Maybe we'll get the privilege of hearing that and playing that as well. But here's the deal. When the good life is found in Jesus and his purposes, today's life has deep passion. Now, personalize that. Your mundane Tuesday. We'll have deeper passion when you actually see your Tuesdays and Wednesdays with a passion for Jesus and his purposes. And regardless of how that Tuesday and Wednesday goes, it will be fixed and settled. And better than that, tomorrow's death will be a mere trading up to a sweeter and fuller life in Jesus. And so the good life as a result becomes a lasting, unshakable, deep, and wide experience of Jesus. As big as your Jesus is, is as big as your passion can be if you'll lock in there. As Eugene Peterson says in his message translation of the Bible, verse 21, he says, Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. See, the beauty of this vision is that it cannot be threatened by circumstance or experience. So if you live with this mentality that says to live is Christ and to die is gain, well, then there will be no tragedy you experience There will be no broken dream, no thwarted plan that can derail your joy and peace. But on the flip side, there will be no happy experience, no next great travel adventure, no perfect relationship that will actually increase your joy and peace. Because your joy and peace isn't fixed on that surfacey, circumstantial view of the good life. It is settled on to live as Christ, to die Is gain. And as Peterson says, life, and then even more life. I can't lose. Except you've walked with Jesus long enough, even if you're only a week old in their faith, to know that your vision does leak and you do lose. Why is that? And I think that happens because we flip God's script. The NIV translates, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The RCV translates it, for to me, to live is gain and to die is Christ. The RCV is the reversed contemporary version. There is no such thing. I made that up this week. (laughs) And it's heresy to change God's word. But I got it by looking at the church culture I live in, in my context. And not just currently, but for a couple of generations now, we have been sold a bill of goods that says, no, 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 here's your good Christian vision for life. Live gaining everything you can gain. I mean, get some good experiences, some more fulfillment, more possessions, more happiness, more comfort. And if you've gained all of that in your earthly life, because you're a Christian, when you die, you'll also get some Jesus. And it's a flipped script, and it's a lie. And Jesus wasn't kidding about lies. They always trap us And they always hold us in bondage because the truth is to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when we as Christians reverse the order, we start believing sayings like your best life now. But that's not the scriptures. The scriptures tell us your good life now and your best life soon when we go to be with him. Yeah, Paul explains this definition of the good life. He puts it real clearly for us. He says, well, what I want you to see is that the good life is played out in chasing after Jesus's purposes. And this is the way he explains those purposes in the next few verses, verse 22 through 26. He says, if I'm going on, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain on in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. In verse 22, he says, I'm torn. I can't decide. I can't choose whether I'd rather live and trade up to that fuller experience of Jesus or or die and trade up to a fuller experience of Jesus or live for the purposes of seeing his work in you advance. When he uses the word choose, I want you to think in terms of prefer. In fact, some English translations say, I don't know which one I prefer right now. You know, when my family goes to a restaurant, you can see the different personal personality types by watching them try to order their food. Uh, we have five children. The family's now grown to 15. When we're all there, you'll get a few personalities like my wife and my youngest who It's a settled preference for them. They know exactly, they go to their go-to favorite, and the choice is that quick and easy. We have other personalities in the family, one I might be looking at on the second row, who will literally ask everybody to go first while they scour the entire menu because it's not a settled preference yet, and so therefore the, the choice is harder. Paul is like that member of the family. He doesn't know what he prefers right now because he loves them so much and wants to see them keep growing. But he loves Jesus so much and wants to be with him at the same time. Let's summarize how Paul views life. He says, if I'm gonna live, I wanna serve Jesus' purposes with you and in you. That could be our vision too, couldn't it? He says, but when I die... I'm gonna trade up to be with Jesus. I heard this from the lips of one of our friends and members here three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, a friend and small group leader here went for some heart tests and got some unexpected news, finding out he needed quadruple bypass and needed it pronto. So Abel and I went down to the hospital to pray with Wayne. His wife and two good friends were gathered around and it was a sweet time of prayer. The four of us prayed over him before surgery. And then Wayne said, I want to pray and close us. And this was Wayne's prayer. Lord, if I wake up and see Cindy, that would be great. But if I wake up and see Jesus, that would be greater. Yet you let us tell you our desires. And right now, I prefer to see Cindy if it's your will. But either way, I will trust you. In the middle of that situation, Philippians 1, 21 vision of life was living and active. And notice it produced a peace and joy that transcended the circumstance. And Wayne, you're probably tuning in online right now. So brother, we can't wait for you to be back in a few weeks. That's the vision that stabilizes us. It's the sense that says, while I'm still on planet Earth, I want to pursue what Jesus has for me. And when it is time to go, I'm going to trade up to be with Jesus. And that feels like a pretty clear vision. I can remember that after this worship service. But I can still lose sight of it. And so can you. And so you have to ask the question, what is it that clouds our vision so often? I mean, if Philippians 1 is so clear, why does it get so fuzzy for us as Christians? And I think the next verse begins to explain why. As Paul lays out four things that can cloud our vision. The first he says in verse 27 is, whatever happens, and again, I don't know if I'm going to live or die, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what's so cool. Um, this is the first command in the book of Philippians. All we've seen so far in chapter one is nothing but incredible encouragement to keep going and keep pressing forward. And now we get a command. By the way, as one of our members, Dana, one of our gatekeepers talked to me after the service, he said, what's so great about that command, conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel, is it's the same command Paul gives the Ephesians and the Colossians when he writes them a letter from prison. Clearly, it's on the front of his mind. And when you see the phrase conduct yourself, literally it means, ready? Behave as a citizen. Behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, know and settle your citizenship. Pledge your allegiance But pledge your allegiance first and foremost to Jesus Christ and his kingdom gospel, which tells me that misplaced priorities and divided loyalties can cloud our vision. We actually get our English word politics from this word conduct yourselves or behave as a citizen in this verse. And so since Paul's raising the issue, maybe we and I get courageous enough to go there too. Before we get into the election year next year, as followers of Jesus, can we decide right now that we're going to take the Bible seriously enough to settle our citizenship identity first and foremost in king and kingdom? And let that have an impact of how we walk through a culture that will be divided, can we decide that we're going to waste no more energy talking about how divisive they are, and instead we will focus and pledge our allegiance to Jesus and following his will and way regardless? The beauty for me of growing up as a military kid and really live in almost all of my childhood formative experiences on military bases, where I had friends who didn't have fathers at home because that they had laid their life down for their country. The beauty was I inherited a grateful patriotism that was just kind of bred into my bones. But you know what's better than that? Growing up as a Christian and seeing that my allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus and his gospel kingdom. Well, that's where my true citizenship lies. And my first priority and loyalty is to Jesus and the gospel. Be careful of getting our allegiances clouded, our vision clouded by divided allegiances and misplaced priorities. And you see how when we do, it starts to spill over into the next thing that clouds our vision, which is disunity. Disunity doesn't just happen. It leaks out of our vision. Because 127, if you read the whole thing together, says Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, how? Here's how. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you, one, stand firm in the one spirit, and two, are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And he starts to show us how our unity is actually how we live out our kingdom citizenship. We stand firm in the one spirit. Secondly, we strive together as one body for the faith of the gospel. It's another vivid word picture. Actually, that phrase striving together has two Greek words, with athletics. He's speaking about wrestling together. He's using a common athletic contest of his day. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to wrestle for something, don't wrestle with each other. Wrestle together for something bigger than you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means that we're going to have to know who the real opponent is. And sometimes we miss and see it as one another. You know, since 33 AD, the church has had somewhat of a hobby of wrestling with each other. I think in our day and time and in our current country right now, we've turned that hobby into a cottage industry, a part-time gig. But notice how we live out the command. Remember, it's to conduct ourselves worthy, behave as a citizen of the gospel, but he said doing two things. Number one, standing firm. So it's another words, just hold tight, hold tight together. But secondly, he said, then move forward, wrestle forward, push forward together. And it makes you think, aren't those opposites? How can you stand firm and go forward at the same time? And if you watched any college football yesterday, you already know the answer to that. Because everybody knows that the battle is won on the line of scrimmage. And in the line of scrimmage, you both hold that line and you hit that line. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. We'll have more to say about where unity truly comes from next week when we open up a classic passage in the scriptures. Hunter will take us through that. But for now, we see that we avoid disunity by standing firm in the gospel, remember? And also then striving together for the gospel. And that's how the gospel moves downfield. Easier to know when you know your real citizenship and your real opponents. Look at the third thing that can cloud our vision. You see it in verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. The them who have judgment coming is those who are violently opposing the Philippians. And it reminds us that one of the things that clouds our vision of living. As Christ is opposition. When you just get pushback, it just starts to get you cloudy. And we won't say a lot about that this morning, but but really clear by this one verse, it's obvious to me that Paul is reminding Christians that justice is coming, that God is still working, and that salvation is ours. And when we hit chapter three, we're going to slow down for three weeks and unpack the fullness of this great salvation story that's now ours. Look at the fourth thing that tends to cloud our vision in verse 29 and 30. For it's been granted you to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here, that I still have, and this might be one of the biggest storms that rolls into our life and clouds our vision, just the the cloud of suffering. We're going to see through the book of of Philippians that Paul says there's two enemies that the Christian has to deal with to stay centered on their vision to live as Christ. The first enemy he's going to talk about in chapter 4 is prosperity, prosperity prosperity is a con job. It teaches us to think that that's where the good life's found and we just start to slowly get seduced into shifting our vision when God chooses to bless in certain ways. But the second one he's bringing up here and will come up again in chapter three is suffering. Suffering's the opposite. It hits your life and knocks you back and and you just start to question the vision. I mean, if the vision was really good, good things would be happening, and it causes us to, to take our eyes off the vision through disappointment. But Paul is clear to tell us here that with Jesus, so think about it this way, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and in the empty tomb, the resurrection, you become a Christian. And he says, with that, Jesus brings with him two gifts to our lives— Gift number one is the gift of believing in him. And gift number two is the gift of suffering on his behalf. Suffering for him. I don't like gift number two. And I don't hang around any Christians who relish it either. But both of them have been given to us. The text says, on behalf of Christ. Which tells me that, first of all, we need to normalize suffering as part of the vision of the good life. Remember, this whole section in the letter is painting a bigger vision of the good life in Christ. And suffering is a part of that. So suffering, as a believer, is not an exception to the Christian life. It's actually part of the Christian life. And yes, we know that Paul is suffering because of persecution. That has not been my story. That may not be your story. But there is no one's story that does not include pain and loss. And when that pain and loss comes, it can cloud our vision of to live as Christ and to die as gain. But the interesting thing here is that verse 29 tells us both of those gifts, the gift of faith and the gift of suffering, they're both gifts to us. The gift of believing in him is the gift of giving us something of staying power when that suffering hits. But the gift of suffering, it's the gift of clarifying what's most important in our life. And you've been there. When life hurts, when you've suffered a loss or a grief, suddenly in that instant, you know exactly what's most important. And the trivial becomes trivial, and the essential gets essential. And it's as though it's the gift of clarity. Yeah, in these two gifts, God gives the gift of clarity over what's most important for us to pursue with passion, and the gift of faith that stabilizes us and gives us staying power in that journey even when it hurts. The simple 12-word, one-line vision. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Men and women, do you see how it's personalized first? For to me. And maybe that's where it needs to start. Is asking the Holy Spirit to reveal really what has captured your vision and your passion. Is it Jesus and his purposes while you're here walking this earth? Is it a good hope of knowing that one day you'll be with him when you step on the other side of eternity? Or have you flipped the script and it's holding you in bondage? We get our opportunity to get our priorities placed back. Rather than me praying for us, we are gonna pray together as the worship team leads us through these next two musical prayers and we get a chance to reorient on to live as Christ and to die as game.
5: take a minute to acknowledge them. We're gonna ask God to make our hearts believe. And that word make can be complicated, can it? It can almost sound involuntary, like God's forcing us. Or maybe it's a request for instantaneous belief and we just want to take a minute to reframe it. Make is both an invitation from us to God and a declaration of our submission to God as our maker. We are inviting God to create in us, to make in us a heart that believes the truth we're singing about. Make is calling on God's character as a creator. Micah 6, 8 tells us that God doesn't change, so who he was in Genesis is who he is today. And if he can make light with his word and humans from dust, then we can ask him, to create in us hearts that really believe that Jesus is in fact better than all the comforts that we use to stabilize our souls. So make shifts our perspective from maybe God helping us along in our effort to us submitting to God's leadership as he forms in us a deeper understanding of who he is and how safe and secure and loved we are. So let's pray these lyrics together, asking God to cultivate and build in us a more accurate view of Jesus as our King and our Master and our Maker. Let's sing this together. In all my sorrows,
0: Jesus is better.
6: Jesus, it is worth it because you are worthy. And those lyrics are our prayer. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, as we close the service, first of all, I am not Doug Rains up there. Doug had to text in that he was sick this morning. And though I'm not glad he's sick, I am kind of glad to brag on our global team for a quick second and tell you that coming up uh, next week is International Bible Translation Day. And I know some of you are thinking, I didn't even know we had one. We do. And one of the things I'm super excited that uh, Fellowship Benville has done, and really Doug and the team have led the way in is choosing to, along with five other churches in the Bentonville area, say that we as a group of churches, the six of us, are going to get together and adopt a people group in an unreached part of the globe around Bangladesh-India border, and we will fully fund a Bible translation and a church plant there and make a 20-, 30-year commitment to that people group should the Lord wait until then. And uh, because of that International Day coming, we thought it might be helpful for you to see, what does it even take for a, a Bible to get translated? Uh, trust me, it's not chat GPT. It's much more nuanced and, and difficult than that. And so you will see next weekend a display of that in the foyer on Saturday, and you've got the times there from 1 to 2.30. But we'll also hold some of that over until next Sunday morning, and you can kind of take a look at that in the foyer. Secondly, community picnics are this afternoon at 5 o'clock, and so on the screen there is the uh, parks that if you live in one of those five towns, uh, the people that you do life with in this church will be there as well. Our staff will be scattered around at each of those parks, and we would love to see you there. Just come and bring a meal, a lawn chair, and truly the agenda is just to enjoy what, what promises to be a pretty evening this evening and some good people around the pavilions there. And then as well, our prayer team is right up here, and Beth and Tim would love to not just uh, see you, but pray with you and pray for you, and it would be our joy to pray for you if we could this morning. As well, if you're brand new, we'd love to connect with you uh, in the foyer at the community uh, booth. But hey, as we close up the service, I want us to close in the way that our Celebrate Recovery ministry closes every Friday night, gathering. It's the classic serenity prayer written years ago by uh, Reinhold Niebert. And uh, mostly, most people know it and have seen it on little cards as just the first opening sentences, and they've never prayed the second verse. But the second verse is what matches Philippians 121. Would you pray the whole prayer with me as we close? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. God bless you, church. We'll see you next week. We love you.